from KQED. I'm KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk with writer Kathy Park Hong about her new book titled Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. It's a collection of essays where she explores the complexities and contradictions of an Asian American identity. Hong describes minor feelings as, quote, emotions built from the sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. We'll also talk to Park Hong about where these minor feelings fit in at a time when anti-Asian racism has again become so overt. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Writer Kathy Park Hong is known for her acclaimed poetry collections, Dance Dance Revolution, Engine Empire, and Translating Maom. But her new book, Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning, is prose, and it's merciless. She's hard on herself for seeking white approval, hard on a system that keeps Asian Americans in what Hong has called a purgatorial status in the black-white binary. But across her seven essays, she also interjects humor and hope. Kathy Park Hong, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you. I'm you, happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on as well. You described writing this book at one point as a dare. A dare to do what? Uh, I think it was um, multiple, uh, there are multiple dares. Uh, a dare to write autobiographically, a dare to write personally, a dare. Uh, I have, you know, in my poetry, I've always uh, written about race, but in an indirect way. And um, I, with this book, I wanted to tackle it directly. It was kind of like a head-on collision with the, uh, with all of my issues with the term Asian American identity and how I, as an Asian American, fit into the racial conversation in America. Uh, I think um, um, the label Asian America is really quite amorphous um, and um, you know um, hard to define because we're in such an in-between um, condition and it's easy to kind of reduce or simplify what Asians are. So um, you know, despite all of these hazardous risks, that was uh, my attempt. Did you feel more exposed writing sort of autobiographically and and writing in prose? Yes. Uh, that being said, it was easier for me to write autobiographically in prose than poetry. Uh, in poetry, for whatever reason, because of the t line break, I, I like to write in persona. You know, I'm much more interested in different characters. Whereas in prose, it was just it just seemed more of a, a down to earth genre where I could. Um, you know, be myself, but it took a long time to find that voice where I felt like I was myself, you mm -hmm. know, um, I had to find that voice. So we touched on this, or I, I mentioned it a little bit in our billboard, but, but what are minor feelings? It's such an interesting construction in terms of the term minor. Um, I was wondering if I could just read, I was planning on reading a passage Please. that defined minor feelings. Um, 
I was thinking that maybe that might be more efficient if Sounds I were to great. do that. Um, so this is um, this is a second essay uh, called Stand Up, in which I talk about uh, the stand-up comedian Richard Pryor and how much I identified with him, and yet I also talked about the complexities of identifying with him because he's black and I'm um, Korean American. Um, and then I talk about why, and I'll just start off there. Um, <clears throat> in Pryor, I saw someone channel what I call minor feelings. The racialized range of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore unintelligenic, built from the sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. Minor feelings arise, for instance, upon hearing a slight and knowing it's racial and being told, oh, that's all in your head. A now classic book that explores minor feelings is Claudia Rankin's Citizen. After hearing a racist remark, she, the speaker asked herself, what did you say? She saw what she saw, she heard what she heard, but after her reality has been belittled so many times, she begins to doubt her very own senses. Such disfiguring of senses engenders minor feelings of paranoia, shame, irritation, and, and melancholy. Minor feelings are not featured in contemporary American literature because these emotions do not conform to the archetypal narrative that highlights survival and self-determination. Unlike the organizing principles of the building's roman, minor feelings are not generated from major change, but from lack of change, in particular structural, racial, and economic change. Rather than using racial trauma as a dramatic stage for individual growth, the literature of minor feelings explores the trauma of a racist capitalist system that keeps the individual in place. It's playing tennis while black and dining out while black. It's hearing the same verdict when testimony after testimony has been given. After every print run, Rankin adds another name of a black citizen murdered by a cop to an already long list of names at the end of the book. This act acknowledges both a remembering and the fact that change is not happening fast enough. Um, and I'm happy to expand upon that uh, passage if, if, if you're interested. Yes, we're talking with Kathy Park Hong, poet and author, reading from her book, Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning. There is so much that is in that passage and reminds me of the different ways that you illustrate it in your book. I mean, there is this one incident that you talk about where you wear a T-shirt to school that has a Playboy bunny on it. And I felt like that was such a good representation of minor feelings, especially as a young person, the, the paranoia, the, the shame and irritation that you describe as part of that whole sort of ambient feeling that surrounds you. I'm wondering, could you describe that experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a minor feelings can be a little bit abstract, but I think it's best understood through different examples. So it's supposed, I wrote it as a kind of comical moment um, <laughs> in, in the book, but it's, it was also kind of traumatic at the time. Right. I, I was like seven or eight years old. I was in elementary school and um, my mother, who's an immigrant, didn't really come across, didn't understand. Maybe she knew what Playboy was, but she didn't, was not familiar with the uh, the logo. <laughs> and so for whatever reason, we had a child-sized t-shirt of a Playboy bunny. 
um, you know, just a logo. And she thought it was just uh, someone gave, she thought someone gave it to her as a, uh, as a gift for me. So the next day, I don't know, to this day, I have no idea why we have it, had it. So she put me in that t-shirt um, and um, sent me off to school the next day. And I didn't know what the shirt meant. And I just recall uh, uh, that I was in recess and um, I had very few friends uh, back then. And I was wearing the t-shirt and then there was this older kid who was probably in fifth or sixth grade who came up to me and said, do you know what that means? And I said, no, um, I don't know what it means. And, you know, she kind of smirked or laughed and ran away and talked, told her friends. And um, basically at that moment, I go into, I describe what happens. I felt this extreme um, shame, right? And embarrassment. I just felt very hot. Um, um, my face felt very hot and I uh, felt like a target. And but what was really um, specific about this experience was that I felt shame, but I didn't know what, why. I didn't yes. know where, why I felt that shame. I didn't you know- You weren't let in on the secret. I she didn't let even in. share I with didn't you. Know. I just thought I was hexed. Like, you know, I had the scarlet letter on me, but I didn't know what the scarlet letter meant. So it, it, I think, it, so that kind of captures ne um, sort of the nebulous feelings that one experiences where, you're, you you feel like an outsider, you feel the shame or this um, kind of paranoia, but you also don't have the vocabulary for it. You don't understand, you don't understand the context for it. You don't, you don't, you, you just don't know. And that was, um, that kind of confusion and shame was kind of the dominant um, experiences I felt growing up um, as a Korean American in Los Angeles. Um, being in a white culture, but also probably also having immigrant parents who didn't explain things to me. You know, I wasn't, um, they didn't, and, you know, I, I realize this acutely now because I'm a mother, they didn't sit me down and be, and was like, okay, you're going to school now. This is what you should explain, what you should expect. Um, or, you know, um, you're going to go on this field trip or you're going to do this. They were not, they didn't, they didn't explain the nuts and bolts. So it was this kind of conflicted, very, uh, kind of tortured experience of shame and, um, uh, um, confusion that, you know, that's a very minor example of minor feelings, but you, there are also very major structural examples of minor feelings as well. Yes. I mean, I feel like in some ways it, it, speaks to parallels or or even represents this sort of condition that you've talked about as a condition of a certain kind of unspoken racism that sort of permeates the lives almost this this question of whether racism against asian americans exist one of the things i'm so struck by is that your book about these minor feelings actually came out during a time when anti-asian racism started to become extremely overt <laughs> um, and, and in a pandemic. And I was wondering what you thought about that. It almost felt like all of these things that you felt all the time, but you know, were sort of more subtle in a way, yet, yet subtle with, in quotes, suddenly feeling like it was blown off, like the, the mask of, of the subtle racism was blown off with the pandemic. <laughs> You know, I think with racism in America, uh, you know, uh, it's always under the surface, you know, I, I so 
um, I was surprised by the kind of virulent racism um, that <laughs> hit, anti-Asian racism that hit when Minor Feelings came out. And, you know, everyone said, oh, this book is so timely. And did you think it was going to be timely? Um, and my answer was no, not, not this timely. Um, you know, book on race is always timely because, um, you know, uh, America was built off, uh, off of racism. However, I do have to say that, um, you know, you, you have to question why it, it happened so suddenly and so fast, this anti-Asian racism work, uh, um, you know, um, Asian Americans were called, uh, you know, uh, Essentially a virus, I mean. <laughs> I mean, yeah, basically. I don't know if I'm allowed to, I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the CH word. So I was, that's why I was pausing. But, um, um, but yeah, basically a virus. And, you know, and the reason why was because it was always just under the surface. I mean, it's just ingrained in American culture uh, where Asians in the past have been, you know, considered a yellow peril or aliens or foreigners back in, uh, from the 1800s. And it just, you know, every once in a while kept, it would pop up, you know, like even as recent as the eighties when Japanese Americans were, um, um, faced a lot of, uh, racism and that, which led to the murder of, uh, Vincent Chin or like, or 9-11, you know, when, um, South Asians were targets, you know, so it's gonna, I guess I just didn't think that it was East Asian Americans turn when the book came out. So there was, um, there was definitely some surprise there, but it was always sort of bubbling under the surface. Now, I don't think I quite answered you. What was the second well, part of your question? Well, mm -hmm. I think I was more just interested in the idea that it actually became so much more overt. I mean, what you were describing yeah. to some extent was, was sort of this unnamed um, feeling that you were having that had such a profound yeah. effect on your life. And then all of a sudden it becomes in incredibly overt. One of the things that I do feel like is slightly different about this moment is I'm seeing a lot more people calling attention to it, calling it out. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if, if you think that that's different as well, that, that people are willing to speak up more about it um, than they have say in the last few decades. Yeah, I think I definitely think so. I, I do think that uh, Asian Americans are much more empowered now um, than they were, say, when I was in my 20s, for instance, or when I was a child. Now, it, even though it, what's interesting is that, like, you know, it was it's the anti-Asian racism has been very explicit, but it was also very familiar to me. It was like, you know, when I was a kid, there was like kids uh, of people were very explicit. They said anti-Asian racist things. As uh, uh, I guess it didn't happen as uh, I guess like right now it's become like a real kind of cultural moment. But that being said, um, especially I would say the younger generation of Asian Americans will not are not having it, you know. And I think they're just much more awake, much more empowered. Um, you know, as we're seeing, um, we're there a lot kind of, there's this alliance with Black Lives Matter um, and much more of an awareness of the structural racism in this country mm -hmm. and where Asian Americans are um, both as victims and as perpetrators. So I'm really, so that, that does make me feel 
hopeful. <laughs> you know, I, I usually I'm, um, I have a lot of despair and cynicism, but like that <laughs> aspect of, of, you know, of, of Americans, like, um, of America makes me feel hopeful. I've also wondered if it's had sort of an oddly unifying force among Asian Americans. I mean, one of the things that you're very clear about is how people don't quite understand how Asian American, it's, it's like a tenuous alliance, I think you wrote, of many nationalities. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, I've, I've thought, wow, this is one, one area where I do feel like it's been somewhat unifying in an, in an ironic way. Um, uh, are, you mean the anti-Asian? Yeah, the racism. <laughs> yeah, I think it has. I mean, you know, there have been, um, you know, Asian American activists uh, for so long. Right. Um, and, you know, and I point, point out um, a historical moment in the late 60s and 70s of um, Asian American activists who were very much influenced by the Black Power movement. However, I would say that among really recent um, Asian immigrants, um, um, you know, Asian immigrants who came since 1965, I would say that uh, quite a few of them, you know, and I would, um, I would include people I know um, who just didn't really think about race or didn't or thought they were immune to it, you know, um, and were just more influenced by the way their, their parents viewed the um, this country, which is to work hard and um, to kind of accumulate wealth for one's immediate family. Um, and that's that, you know, and not think about the larger, the community at large. Um, and I think that has changed for a lot of Asians. And I think part of that was a lot of the kind of xenophobia that they faced. Um, some Asians were thought, you know, yes, this is extreme, but, you know, this is also not completely, doesn't con contradict their view of the country, whereas other Asians were very much surprised by it. And I think it was a wake-up call indeed. One of the things that um, I was really struck by was how much Richard Pryor had this profound effect on you. I think you write at one point that he blowtorched the beige from your eyes. But the part of it that I want to bring up, actually, is that it inspired you to do stand-up. Uh, yeah. I thought your description of the scripted nature of poetry readings was really funny and, and that you tried to change it up with stand-up. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? When I was... Um sort of in, I think this was in my 20s, late 20s, uh, early 30s, um, and I was, um, you know, writing poetry, um, and uh, the poetry world was very white, and I was quite frustrated with how white it was and how whenever I did a poetry reading, um, it was to a, always to a mostly white audience who, um, quite frankly, pretty bored. And, um, and part of it, and I think that's a fault of my, maybe that's a fault of my own, uh, own performance, but I think it was also just a culture which was really pretentious and um, sanctimonious. And, you know, a lot of the readings that I attended, even like the so-called experimental poetry readings was, was almost, it was really kind of church-like. And there was something very rote about, you know, how poets read their uh, poems and stuff. And so I was feeling also just stuck and I was at a really masochistic period of my life. I think when, as I was saying, when I was writing, uh, when I first discovered Pryor, I was deeply depressed. And I just, 
I was stuck. I didn't know where to go. And then afterwards, after I saw Pryor's uh, comedy routine, I was like, I just had this, just, I just wanted to just, um, I just wanted to just screw things up. You know, I just wanted to kind of um, experiment and just completely blow up the, the poetry reading etiquette. And, um, and again, I was very feeling very masochistic at the time. So instead, so I would be invited to do a reading at a bookstore or at a bar or at a university setting, but instead of reading my poems, I would do a little stand-up routine. Um, and at first I kind of just used other stand-up comedians because it wasn't actually a comedy routine. I was using other comedian line, lines of comedians. And then I actually started using my own life as material, which is how I started to write autobiographically is through these stand-up routines. And it was, at first people really uh, laughed. Um, so it made me feel good about myself. I was thinking, well, maybe this is something that I could do professionally. And then, um, and then of course, but mo for the most part, people in the audience were very uncomfortable. They looked at me as if I wet my pants. And, um, it was really quite appalling, in fact. And, um, and I stopped doing it soon after, but it was a way for me to just kind of puncture that kind of, uh, let's see. Um, like this idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was, uh, that was um, I described that in minor, um, minor feelings. Yeah, I was struck by it because I felt like you were, you were puncturing this whole notion of what constitutes a poetry reading in this kind of, environment, but also at the same time, I felt like puncturing notions of Asian Americans, Asian American women, and yeah. that, admit yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, I think there was, there was always this kind of unwritten or unsaid expectation that, you know, I was, at, first of all, there are very few Asian American poets out there, and when you see, and Asian Americans are so rarely centered, and so when I would come up as this, like, kind of, um, you know, short, petite, Asian-American woman um, on stage, people just had this expectation that I would just be uh, very polite and quiet and read very uh, elegant, subdued poetry. And I wanted to just blow that up, you know, by kind of speak, uh, saying bad, lewd, terrible jokes um, <laughs> that are not worth repeating. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Kathy Park Hong, poet and author of Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. She's also a professor at Rutgers Newark University and poetry editor for The New Republic. What questions do you have for Kathy Park Hong? Have you experienced these so-called minor feelings or had a temptation to blow up a norm or an expectation of you? Uh, what has being Asian American meant to you? Give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More with Kathy Park Hong after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Kathy Park Hong, poet and author of Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, a collection of essays where she explores the complexities, the contradictions of an Asian American identity. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Join us. What are your questions for Kathy Park Hong? The number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at KQED. Org. This listener writes, what was your reaction when you first heard the president use the phrase China virus or Chinese virus? And what would you say to white people who continue using the phrase? Uh, that's a good question um, about the second part. Um, when Trump you, uh, said uh, China virus, I wasn't surprised, sadly. I was, in fact, ex expecting him to um, enable uh, and uh, kind of promote the xenophobia. But I have to, I want to first say that, you know, he wasn't the one who initiated, I mean, I think uh, anti-Chinese and anti-Asian racism was actually pretty global. You know, I was, I first heard about it in Europe, uh, it happening in Europe, um, you know, or in Australia. And so when it hit the US and I started hearing incidents, I thought, okay, it's only a matter of time before Trump grabs onto it and will use it to displace uh, uh, responsibility and pin the blame on um, a minority, on us Asian Americans, like he always does. So I was enraged, yes, but I was not surprised. Um, for those who still continue using the term. Um, and and I, if I may, you know, it isn't just white yeah. people who use it. I mean, let's be real. Right? Um, yeah. I've heard it across the spectrum. Yeah, and I, I, yes. Um, and that actually, that was what was um, what's been kind of thornier, actually, about the anti-Asian racism is that it's not, it's not just white people when, um, you know, a lot of the xenophobia was happening in cities like Oakland and New York City. Um, I was personally attacked uh, by someone who was um, Latinx. I wasn't angry at him. I think I was more sad. Um, and I think, you know, I, I tend to approach it differently. I think that um, part of it has to do with, um, you know, when I see racism between POC, between um, um, BIPOC, um, I, you know, if it's, uh, if, I, if I encounter anti-Blackness uh, in Asian uh, communities, I try as hard as I can to fight against it. And I have been fighting against it by writing this book. But when I see it from other groups, I think a lot of it also just comes from ignorance and not knowing um, who, that Asian Americans are this really tenuous alliance, you know? And um, I'll hear comments like, oh, well, you know, in China, they do this, in China, they do that. And I, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to me how little Americans know about Asia and about Asian Americans and the differences between Asia and Asian Americans. It's sort of like saying, it's kind of like when blaming China for, uh, it, it's blaming an Asian American for 
I mean, there are so many things wrong with it, but it's like, I guess it's like kind of like, you know, after during World War II, blaming um, France uh, for uh, the Holocaust, you know, um, it's just people don't understand. People just don't know about Asian America. And it's uh, it's really quite unfortunate. And as you write, when you do use Chinese, you implicate all Asians because Chinese is synecdoche for Asians the way Kleenex is for tissues, as you've said. Mm -hmm. And also, you're right, your book really does grapple with interracial conflict as well and anti-Blackness in the Asian American community, which I, I think is a really important conversation, especially to be having right in this moment. Um, but the other thing that you talk about is you use the word purgatorial, I think, to describe sort of mm -hmm. the, the status of Asian Americans in, in this black-white binary. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. What do you mean by purgatorial? Well, I do, I, by purgatorial, I, I mean that, you know, Asian Americans are always uh, somewhere in between whiteness and blackness. You know, I think uh, Americans are used to looking at ra uh, race uh, between the poles of whiteness and blackness and Asian Americans, and maybe to a certain extent, uh, Latinx and um, uh, Latinx people as well as somewhere kind of in between. Um, if we look at it historically, Asian Americans um, were used as a wedge, right? Uh, where they were considered the good minorities. They were model minorities. They were the good minorities who never asked for handouts and so forth. And so we were used as an example uh, to undermine um, civil, the civil rights movement. And, um, you know, or you could, a more recent example is uh, the LA riots where uh, people, you know, there were a lot of like op-eds and people saying like, oh, look at these poor Korean merchants who are being attacked by these black and brown people. Um, look at these black people who are having these riots and so forth. And of course, if we're used as a minority, as a wedge, um, African-Americans will look at us resentfully, um, will be resentful um, and not think of us as allies, you know. Um, and that's something that we really need to kind of um, demystify and work on. You know, I think I'm very much interested in building bridges between um, other BIPOC. That's really important to me. Well, let me go to listener Pori in Berkeley. Hi, Pori. Hey there. Can you hear me okay? I can. Okay, great. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a white woman that, and I live in Berkeley. And I'm a big, huge fan of Margaret Cho. And there are many other uh, comedians that I've heard on the radio or seen who are Korean American. And it seems like there's a lot of just kind of cultural output. And I just wondered if there was something um, particular to the, the Korean American immigrant experience or just Korean American experience that's different maybe from like the Chinese American experience. Not that you would necessarily know that. But um, that really, you know, seems to promote um, promote people um, um, being more more visible, or you know, more um, more attracted to you know being comedians and and um, being being out there on the on the um, on the kind of super cultural stage. Hmm. That yeah, makes Pori, sense. Pori thinks. Thoughts, Kathy Parkong. Uh, I don't know if I would kind of ascribe cultural generalizations to why, like, there are more Korean American comedians rather than Chinese American comedians, or, uh, you know, there are also a lot of Indian American comedians as well. 
Um, I, uh, you know, I, and, and there are lots of, you know, I think of Ali Wong, who's, um, I think, uh, who's Chinese and Vietnamese American. Um, so, you know, every, I, I would say that like, if you're an outsider, you're gonna have, uh, you know, you're, if you're an outsider looking in, you might have a more trenchant acerbic view of American culture. And that can apply to anyone who is either Asian American or indigenous and, or black or what, what, whatever. I think like there's a long history of marginalized people and comedy because comedy is a means to just uh, um, speak the truth. Um, it's like a Trojan horse where you could like kind of uh, hide the truth in a joke, you know? And it's a way of also of laughing away one's pain. Um, and, you know, um, there's a long black history of that and you see that in Asian culture as well. I, you know, I, I would say that with Korean Americans, you know, we have had a really hard history, you know, I mean, we come from a long history of colonization and war and, you know, this little country um, that is now divided between North and South have, has be been beaten a lot, beaten up a lot by history and, um, you know, and there's a lot of us also just scattered around the world. And I think kind of being this kind of exile, being in this exiled position, um, having kind of the violence of history behind you are gonna, it's gonna give you a kind of tilted perspective and perhaps some sharper and uh, perspective on, uh, on, on the world. And maybe, you know, maybe it will also gift you with a kind of gallows humor, a kind of dark sense of humor of, about everything. Um, as um, as I tend to as well, but again, I can't. Gen you know, it's hard. I would yes. I would hesitate to generalize and say this is all Korean Americans. You know, so let me go next to caller David in Santa Barbara. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Mm -hmm. What's on your mind? Um, yeah. So I've had an interesting experience in that um, I grew up as a white male in a predominantly black area and then um i worked overseas for extended periods in southeast asia uh africa um and i have to say that my experience um with racism on the other side of it is no different so i, I was just wondering what your comment would be on that what do you mean by racism on the other side of it uh, well, being the other in a uh, foreign country, not American. You um, mean it was like having minor, like you felt singled out or othered in another country as a white person? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it, again, having been brought up in a area where I was fairly well used to that, um, I'm just curious to, uh, it just kind of seems like a, uh, part of the human condition and I don't know if that's if that's true or not oh well David thanks I mean I think I, I definitely think that race-based stress cuts across races though I think it it manifests in different forms and experiences um, and it isn't exactly the the same thing uh, Kathy Parkong I don't know if you had any thoughts on David David's comment 
Sure. You know, this is something that I actually heard quite a lot, you know, when I spent a year in South Korea and there were actually quite a few, there was an American military was stationed there and, um, and there were also a lot of white English teachers who said the same thing where they felt like they were, uh, they didn't exactly call it reverse racism, but they said, oh, well, you know, I'm like an outsider or a foreigner here. And certainly it is the case that you get, you know, when whites are in other countries where they're not the dominant culture, uh, they kind of get a sense of what it's like to be alienated or to be stared at or to feel different in some way. But I would really, really caution against uh, you know, uh, leveling your sense of alienation or saying that your sense of alienation is the same as what Black Americans feel or what say, or even how I feel growing up in a, a white culture. Because when we're talking about racism here, we're ta not talking about just feeling like an outsider in a dominant culture. We're talking about structural racism. Okay, we're talking about we're talking about the long history of colonialism and American occupation in non-white countries. So, if we're talking, you know, you feeling like an outsider in, uh, um, in an African American neighborhood, um, I I'm sure you are already quite well aware of this, but you know, it's it's uh, that's not that's not racism. Racism is the unequal distribution of wealth, education, all kinds of re uh, resources that are hoarded by white Americans. And um, there are definitely a lot of stark statistics to prove that. And I think what's happening with COVID, with the number of black and brown Americans who are dying is a very clear example of that. But I also think that this is also global, you know, that, um, that whites, uh, and I'm not talking about Americans, but I think also Europeans have hoarded uh, the wealth um, through colonization, um, through occupation. Um, so if say a white American is in Vietnam, for instance, or Cambodia, I think that's a different situation. I think that's a different case, you know, because of the, the asymmetry of power between Americans and say Vietnamese and Cambodians and the history of occupation that Americans have had uh, I've um, had in Vietnam and Cambodian. It's completely different. And I would also say that, you know, a white tourist in um, Asia are also is, they're considered an outsider, yes, and they're exotified, but they're not structurally marginalized in the same way. They're not considered inferior. The way that, say, someone who's black or someone whose color is, skin color is darker, would be in America or in other countries. Well, Christina tweets, this book made me process things I didn't know I had to, the role of friendships that challenge you when no one else will, and the essay on Teresa Hakyung Cha. It's so much. And I do want to ask you about your decision to include a whole essay on Teresa Hakyung Cha. I don't think a lot of people are actually familiar with her, but one of the things that you um one of the things that you really also point out is how how unfamiliar they are with the circumstances of her death and what was behind some of that. Could you just describe briefly Teresa Hakyung Cha's situation and, and why she, it was so important for you to dedicate um, a real, sure. yeah, comprehensive look at her? Um, Teresa Hakyung Cha um, was a poet and artist who uh, immigrated to San Francisco, actually. 
at the age of, I think she was 13 or 14. And she was an avant-garde artist and writer. Um, she went to Berkeley and she was someone who inspired me from when I was in, uh, like, you know, since I was in college. Uh, I was introduced to her by this other amazing Korean American poet, Myung Mi Kim. And um, she was someone who was always, um, her book, Dick K, uh, was brown groundbreaking for me. And the great dictate is a book that is a memoir, um, a photo collage, poetry. It's an it's an uncategorizable genre, cross genre book that is about her life, but it's also a book about Korea, told through the stories of women revolutionaries and martyrs. And this book has always been very influential to me. Now. Um, Teresa Ha Kyung Cha has had also a very short, tragic life. She was raped and murdered in New York City at the age of 31, um, 31 um, in the early 80s. Um, and uh, she was raped and murdered by a security guard uh, in, um, in, in, the, in the Park building, which is also a landmark building in downtown New York um, in Soho. And I... Uh, you know, there's been a lot of people haven't heard about her, but a lot of scholars know about her. And there's a lot of bibliography about Teresa Hakyung Cha. And, you know, I, you know, I was like looking up, I was writing a review and I was mentioning Teresa Hakyung Cha and I decided to look up and see when she was murdered. And I realized looking it up that no one told that story about how she died. And that disturbed me. Um, and what was even more disturbing was when I was looking, reading essays, biographies, curatorial notes about her, was that people uh, excluded the word rape. And no one, very few people mentioned that she was also raped. They just said that she died. And I was really just kind of disconcerted by this kind of caginess. Why did people, why have like all these historians and scholars neglected to write about her, her, her rape and murder? And I thought it was a strange kind of silencing. And so I decided to embark on this uh, uh, story. I, it just became a, a longer and longer essay in which I kind of, investigated into her uh, death, which was already, you know, um, the court papers were online. It wasn't really that hard. The, um, the murderer was convicted already in jail. It was, um, but then I also talked to her brother. Um, I talked to um, her friends. And, and it was interesting because a lot of the justification you heard from people was that they didn't want to disturb the family by talking about this. But in talking to her brother, it didn't seem like it, it disturbed him at all to be able no. to share his sister's story. I mean, I, I think it was, yeah, this sort of odd erasure of those circumstances. In, yeah, in sort of I think, yeah, I think it was an odd erasure and it was strange, like, what I heard, I think what I kept hearing, I mean, the essay is very much about silence and different kinds of silence around um, violence against women. But um, one reason that I kept hearing again and again is that they didn't want to sensationalize 
her life. They didn't want to her artwork to be overshadowed by the story of her violent death. And this is why the curators, for instance, were very careful about writing about her death because they didn't want to sensationalize and turn her, her and turn her into this kind of, I don't know, like Sylvia Plath or Anna, Anna Mendiata type figure where it's all about her murder and nothing else, which I completely understand. But out of those good intentions, came this kind of silence, you know? And also, I also heard that like family members didn't want to hurt the family members. And I also was wondering, you know, a lot of these scholars are Asian American and I was like, what is it? Is it also something about the fact that these are Asian American scholars that they don't want to, that they're kind of afraid to broach the subject or, I don't know. I mean, that's, that remains a kind of question, but um, her brother was, very happy to talk to me. In fact, he wrote a memoir in Korean about her murder. Mm -hmm. And it was really quite moving and um, astounding talking to him. Um, Again, we're talking with Kathy. Away, but <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Kathy Park Hong of Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning. She's also a professor at Rutgers Newark University and poetry editor for the New Republic. And Edward in Santa Barbara join us. Hi, Edward. Hi. Um, so this is really interesting. And, um, you know, how you frame this uh, reminds me of microaggressions. And I was lucky enough to um, have Chester Pierce as a professor. And, you know, so I was lucky enough to actually talk to him uh, years and years ago about microaggressions. And one of the things I think that's happened over the years is that the white population in this country has dismissed what black people, brown people are saying uh, because they just either deny it or avoid it and don't want to deal with it. Um, and what's happened you know, recently, especially with George Floyd, is there are all these videos now you can't deny. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons you're starting to see white people protesting. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is that in this country, people are basically brainwashed. And I know that's a very strong word, but the reason I say that is you think, think about how we're taught history in the public schools. Um, it's distorted and it's inaccurate. And there are things that um, are in the history of black and brown people and Asian people in this country that people don't know about that are very, very important. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I'm saying that, that, you know, we're brainwashed into this um, excuse the ironic term of whitewashed history of, of America, um, that we're, we're all influenced by that, whether, whether we're white, black, or brown, we all are influenced by that. Well, Edward, thanks for sharing that perspective. Let me see if I can squeeze Michael from Brentwood in here. Hi, Michael, go right ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, uh, in waiting, I've been hearing a lot of things about, you know, a horrible tragedy that befell a young woman uh, being raped and murdered, um, <clears throat> talking about what is Asian American identity. Uh, and I think the, the question or questions I have is, one, once we start talking about what it is to be, what is the Asian American identity or what is the African American identity or the Caucasian Already, we're falling into a trap of abstraction, which inherently can lead to racism or bias. And when I listen to the discussion unfolding, I'm hearing things from horrible things that happen to individuals that maybe are racially motivated, and that's awful, to systemic 
issues in society where these things have been going on for so long, it's baked into the process. There's no person to point at and say that person's doing something wrong. It's, you know, zoning laws that have been in place for years that people really aren't even aware of anymore, just the momentum of the system going along. So my question for the author is, really, what is it you're trying to achieve here? You know, I'm unclear on what your goal is in communicating this. Michael, thanks. Because it feels like it's all over the board. Kathy Parkong, do you want to further go on this question of what I you're trying to achieve. I mean, I guess one of the things that I'm really struck by is that you you decided not to say minor feelings, the Asian American identity. You 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 call the subtitle an Asian American identity. And I think that's an important thing to point out. Mm, yeah. Uh, I would recommend reading the book <laughs> if you yeah. want to understand what I'm trying to say. Um, and also I would say that the book is, you know, you're not going to be able to get a sense of what I'm trying to say just from conversation alone. Um, so far, let me start with an example. Um, you know, a recent kind of current event example. Uh, you know, there was a there was an, a, a poll by the Economist that came out of uh, a racial breakdown of the people who were voting for Biden, and um, there was uh, there was white uh, breakdown of white people, black people, and Latinos, and um, and then that's it. Um, um, their Asians were just not included, as they often are not included in uh, uh, national statistics, national polls, national anything. Um, and what is a common experience, whether you're Southeast Asian, South Asian, or East Asian, is that you're constantly, and this goes beyond microaggressions, where you're constantly overlooked. You know, your experience is constantly overlooked. I think what uh, binds us together is this kind of structural invisibility and personal invisibility. It's like in the book, I say it's like being ghosted, yeah. whether no matter what you do, there's not, people don't see you. I mean, it, it's, it's about representation in Hollywood and music and so forth. But it's also about like just not being left out of the racial discourse in America, mm -hmm. out of the of, out of the political discourse in America, and when you're left out like that, or polls or whatever, politicians are not going to seek you out and understand where you are coming from. So if your story is being left out, then pe um, people will also just kind of make assumptions about you, whether you're either Chinese when you're actually Cambodian, or that you are a model minority you know, or you're a model minority and you're really good at math or what have you. My, well, my, I, I, yeah, sorry, finish yeah, your ahead. thought, Kathy Parkong. We, we have about 30 seconds. Oh, my my book is, is an attempt, my own personal uh, attempt to kind of fill in that invisibility, fill in that gap, give, um, demystify the model minority myth, the invisibility, and talk about why we need to participate and why we need to be recognized uh, as part of the American public. And this uh, listener writes, I'm an immigrant from China and a naturalized citizen. Thank you for your book. You have shaken my world. I'm an aspiring writer. I read your minor feelings and how it was impossible for you to escape. 
from being othered and a lot of sentiments like that Kathy Park Hong for being willing to make yourself vulnerable in a book like this. Again, it's titled Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning. Kathy Park Hong, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thank you for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.